Gross. I'm Wes Mueller. I'm very sweaty. <laughs> Hi, very sweaty. <laughs> We're having conversations so with creatives. Uh, who, who are we conversing with today? Very sweaty. <laughs> today we have Ellery Harris, who is the deputy editor of The Nib. Tell me what The Nib is. The Nib is a website that functions as a uh, place that you can go to get your political cartoons, yeah. your nonfiction cartoons. Right. Uh, for example, and we talk about this in the interview, a long-form, what, eight-piece, seven-piece? Seven or eight, I can't remember. Seven or eight-piece eight nonfiction piece about a uh, woman who was... Uh, accused of murdering her partner right. in Tasmania, I believe. Yep. Which is where Ellery's from. Yeah. Uh, it's great. You should yeah. check it out. Uh, the Nib has a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. Some good stuff. They also try to do some longer pieces that are more informative. Right. And not just like social commentary, but like more. Stuff that's going whisk- to like be more than just the moment since, you know, Drawing and coloring and writing takes time. Right. Um, stuff that isn't beholden day. to headlines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stuff like uh, voter fraud and stuff like that is really yeah. important to understand. Like the long term relationship or the history of the relationship between the United States and Korea. Oh, that was a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So without further ado, here is our interview. I think that what was really fun about that was that it was a really good mix of dick jokes and people being serious. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to have a subject come up without um, have it being dominated by the same kinds of conversations. You know, it's like a bunch of guys talking about guys in comics. And it's like, yeah, we fucking know your perspective. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like we get it every day. It's great. Let's try some diverse voices for once. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it was really a conversation about masculinity and creating characters that demonstrate different kinds of masculinity rather than just being like, you know, one, which is interesting for me because I only ever work in fi- like nonfiction. So I don't, I don't create characters really. So, right, right. yeah. Interesting. Uh, do you find in that panel in the discussion, did you find that you had to look at the way you presented nonfiction more masculine than it should have been or non, not masculine? Well, so I was the moderator of the panel, so okay. my job really, was really just to keep and get everybody else, you know, talking. Um, but I think that it was interesting thinking about not just the way that um, uh, characters are created but how they're presented. So not just thinking about someone's backstory but, like, how are you going to draw them? And, like, yeah. you know, we talked a lot about body image for dudes in comics and, like, how there aren't enough, like, diverse male body shapes and, like yeah. – one of the panelists was like, I really fancy men that are a little bit more chunky than your average, you know, <laughs> sure. male, like, comic book character. So, yeah. you know, she was like, I want to see more overt sexuality around, you know, larger dudes, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know definitely in, like, Cape Comics, like, you see pretty much one body type with, like, a couple ex- exceptions. And I... I think that's part of like why i don't enjoy those types of comics it's like i don't i want to see characters that are are a little more realistic than that Mm. yeah yeah i recently started writing fiction more and it's hard 
it's not hard, but it's interesting to take a look at like, oh, why? Like, why in my mind is that person this way? And does it have to be? No, of course not. Like, yeah, of course it doesn't and change it. <laughs> and so it is interesting seeing the kind of things that you inherit from other media that you've in, enjoyed or whatever your whole life. And then being able to be like, okay, but now it's my turn. Mm. And do I have to do it that way? The answer is no, you don't, you know, and you should probably examine why. <laughs> so yeah. thinking about body types in media in general, it's interesting to see, or it's interesting to hear that someone else, else was like, yeah, why aren't my attractions being mentioned here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not like it's a joke, not like, oh, dad bod. No. <laughs> Interesting. You know, it's like, no, yeah. it's an honest person. <laughs> well, one of the points that was made on the panel that I really agreed with was that um, because so many uh, creators in the past have been guys, it's a projection of what they think that the female gaze sees when that's actually uh-huh. inaccurate. Like women are usually far more honest about like, oh, yeah, I like a guy who looks, you know, like this and maybe that's not a conventional idea of what a good looking man is in particular right. but you know i think it's i think we like i think women are somehow like way more open with that stuff i think than guys are i don't know why yeah it's interesting i didn't consider like the idea of men creating for the female gaze but like doing it really bad yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah they're like this is what everyone finds attractive and actually it's not true yeah i wonder what i wonder why that is i wonder if it's like what, why do you think that is, that, that men have this idea of what women find attractive that is so, like, divorced from mm. reality, <laughs> from, like, that honest sort of idea that you have of it? Um, I think, in part, it's because we're all a victim to thinking that there's only one type of good-looking human um, in of, of any sex or gender. You know, it's there's a, a specific type of, you know, particularly when we're talking about mainstream comics, like muscular, like being muscular or having – we associate physical strength with, um, you know – the strength of superheroes, which is almost stupid because yeah. <laughs> like if you have superhuman strength, does it really matter if your muscles are really developed or not? Cause your muscles yeah. aren't doing it, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something that I find interesting about. Like I was thinking earlier about trying to like, think of like uh, what like superhero comics, is it not like a big muscly dude? And Spider-Man immediately jumped to mind and he has like sort of super strength, but he's like very much like the nerdy teenager who can lift stuff despite his like spindly arms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's, that's why do you guys see the, um, Oh, this is a bad question, but the the Avengers movie before the last Avengers, the Avengers movie, Age just of Ultron. Of, yeah, the Age. Of- <laughs> I don't think I saw it actually, but <laughs> was it the Age of Ultron? I can't remember I the know. one where they introduced this. No, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Black Panther. This is embarrassing. Oh, okay. Am I talking about Black Panther? No, You're I'm talking not. About no, I'm talking about Captain America, no, Winter Soldier. <laughs> no, it's not that. Maybe it, no. Civil War. So I mean. Winter Soldier is in it. This is it was a really stupid game. I should not be playing this. <laughs> there is an ev- recent Avengers movie that introduces the Spider-Man character um, right. in in the um, and it is very much around the jokes are all around that idea of him just being a scrawny little kid who's kind right. of over eager, um, but he still like has as much power as all of the other yeah. people. I don't know very much about superhero comics. Neither we should probably we. not even Neither be talking Neither about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, those are not my preferred comics. Let's no. put it that way. Movies, I've seen a few of them, quite a few of them. But again, it's not like a choice. I don't mm. know. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, 
I wanted something stupid that I don't have to pay attention to. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Plane movies. I yeah. feel like oh, superhero yeah. movies are excellent on planes. Yeah. It's really good in the same way that comic books used to be excellent on planes for me. Right. But I don't really buy comic books as much. Like, like I don't buy the, what do they call them? You know, the ones that come out every month. Uh, trade paperbacks? Trade backwards, yeah. yeah. Not the single issues, but the trades, the bigger yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way I buy comics yeah. anymore. I can't do the singles. No. Yeah. It's just such a waste of space. <laughs> <laughs> and advertisement. There's so much advertisement in them now, so it's very interesting. To, there's always been. Well, yeah, there's always been, but there's none in the trades, so it's it's interesting to go to a single issue after only reading trades for so long. So I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, 10 pages? <laughs> and then an advertisement? Like, five of them are ads? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just really unsatisfying. I feel like I don't get any kind of closure from the story. I don't know what's, you know, it's too episodic for me. I need right. more, which is ridiculous because I work in online comics that only have like 20 <laughs> panels. So, you know, who am I to talk? <laughs> uh, even a trade takes like an hour tops to like burn through for me half the yeah, time. So sure. like getting a, a single and like getting to only spend like five minutes with it, like maybe yeah. just, yeah, it's not enough. I mean, that's what the most depressing thing is about making comics is yeah. that you spend weeks and hours weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> at so much time yeah. making these things. And, you've, and you're like, oh, I really hope someone notices this amazing background character that I've just drawn in here. And look at the, the line on that coat. It's perfect. No one cares. Really They're not looking at the it. really the perspective this time. Yeah. <laughs> this is the best I've ever done perspective. <laughs> yeah. And the truth is, is that no one is spending more than a few seconds looking at that panel. Right. But yeah. they will notice if you do something badly. Yeah. So. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then to think of that in animation too, where it's like a split second of a, you know, a couple of second animation. You're like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My sister is an animator and I have had conversations with her about her life choices because I, 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 I cannot... The idea of doing any kind of 2D animation stuff is just a no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny. I was uh, looking at some stuff on your website and there's. Uh, it seems like you have a very artistic family in general. It seems like many, many members of your immediate family are filmmakers or multimedia artists or stained glass artists, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. My mom is a stained glass artist. My brother makes films and my sister does animations and multimedia. Yep. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's because we should start our own company, you know. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Just have like all your bases covered. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was it like growing up around stained glass stuff? Because I mean, that's to me, at, you, you see it in churches and that's kind of it for, for my experience. Um, so my mom's work, most of her personal work is not to do with the church. Um, so we definitely, she did a lot of church windows as sort of bread and butter money when I was growing right. up. But um, the type of work that she does uh, of her own accord is much more abstract and involves like a nice. lot of like glass slumping and fusing that's um, in really weird and crazy shapes and things. And often to me looks like the ocean, looks like water, you yeah. know, she has like... Uh, like she uses a really, she has a really good sense of color, and she's also a perfectionist, which um, is, you know, I guess important when you're a craftsperson. You know, when you're building something that has to last a really long time, actually knowing, you know, oh, this is, you know, <laughs> second guessing yourself and going back and making sure it's absolutely perfect is 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 the right way of doing things. But of course, if I was doing that with comics, it's like not, <laughs> not sustainable. Yeah. No, it's yeah. not sustainable. But I think that I learned a lot from my mum actually in in practice in terms of 
the way that, you know, uh, commercial artists works. Um, and I think sometimes I, I encounter people who didn't grow up perhaps in the same, same similar environment who take things a lot more to heart than I might. Right. You know, my mum is always like, you know, she would say things like even, you know, Michelangelo used an eraser, yeah. you know, and people uh, just because you're talented doesn't mean that you're actually going to end up being successful because being talented is not as important as being hardworking and being in the right place at the right time. Right, right. You know, all that kind of cliched advice that, right. you know, sometimes parents give you, but my mum was giving it in a very specific context. <laughs> yeah. Very useful to <laughs> yeah. longevity. Yeah. Definitely. Very interesting. Have you been to the Everett Museum of Glass? No. That's uh, in Washington and Everett, I believe, is yeah. where it was. Uh, but they, we didn't go inside, but there's a... There's no, a, it was Tacoma. Tacoma, I'm Oh, sorry. Tacoma, where Dale Chihuly is from, right? There's like a Chul- Dale Chihuly, the glass artist. I don't know that. Probably. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. there's a museum of glass. Yeah, there. they have a museum of glass next to their contemporary art That's museum. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was really interesting. We didn't get to go in it, but they have this like whole outdoor section of it that's really interesting. Yeah. But it's all like... Um, it's like a sky bridge over a highway or a main road and there's a lot of individual pieces stacked up in little shelves that have a kind of um, transparent glass that's kind of milky and so the sun comes through and then through the glass and so it's not immediately in your face so you can still see mm-hmm. um, but there's also a lot of just giant weird glass like pieces glass sculptures glass po- sculptures and ponds like yeah yeah it's very interesting. Anyway, something that sounds one, very cool. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of glass art, yeah, yeah. it's very yeah. interesting to see and be like, oh yeah, this is more like what I understand yeah. <laughs> as abstract weird art for glass. Mm. But um, yeah, it's fascinating growing up in that kind of atmosphere. Was very um, useful to your current career, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, so I wonder, like, was it much easier for you than some of your classmates and some of the people around you to? kind of deal with the failure of being an artist sometimes? I think so. I think also I'm actually have my background is in media. So I uh, did not want to be an artist when I was growing up. I actually didn't do art at all in school. Um, I saw the types of poverty levels that most working artists experience and was like, I don't want that. I want a regular (laughs) paycheck. Uh, I want to like, you know, be able to support myself properly without depending on the trends of the day or the whims of whatever anybody else thinks my work is worth. Um, and then, uh, I spent, uh, I went, I went to school for journalism and I spent a number of years working in public broadcast. Um, and, uh, and also I think that that is really journalism school is really where you learn not to be precious about things because, you know, I remember my features, right. Feature writing, uh, teacher, Marie Curtis saying, no one gives a shit about your opinion <laughs> when you first start out. And also the editor who is editing your work probably knows what they're talking about. Otherwise they wouldn't be your, an editor, you right. know? Right. Um, and there's a level of not being, learning to not be precious about your work and to take criticism in a way that is not, it's not about you personally. It's not like, you know, not every piece that you create is, you know, your soul, uh, you know, bared <laughs> out, you know, um, which I think pre- at least prepares you for commercial work. Um, I do think that there's a big difference between the types of comics that I do and uh, art comics or com- like comics that really are a pure form of artistic expression for someone. That's And that's an entirely different story. Yeah. Right. Interesting. I was listening to another interview that you did, another podcast, and your advice was similar to that about 
um, about editors and learning from editors and being able to understand that they're not hating your work. They're trying to make it better and that you should not take it as them like dissing you, but also understand that you can say no to them too, but they probably know better because they do it full time. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm glad that you repeated. So you've, you've repeated to me something that I've said. Sounds like Pastor Larry was really smart, and you should all listen to her. <laughs> Is that hard to take that kind of advice yourself, though, for for your own work? Oh yeah. Sometimes I argue. I mean, I get edited by my boss Matt Bores and my my colleagues as well. Um, and you know, a lot of issues that I have had on one of my larger pieces, um, which was uh, called "Reported Missing," it came out last year. Um, it was nominated for a Slate Prize, but I lost to Michael DeForge. Thanks, Michael. Um, <laughs> was that I really resisted um, what I perceived as like a sort of American cultural imperialism um, in uh, making me change things that were, you know, they're like, well, Americans don't know what that is. So you have to like make it really obvious. And I was like, why do we have to dumb everything down for Americans? And I say, I am an American. But I say this feeling like, you know, uh, sometimes I think there's too much spoon feeding that we do in the work that we create where we're trying to be like, oh, but you need to really understand exactly what this is. And I'm like, can people just learn something? Can you use Google? Do you like you get the gist of something if you understand uh, the the what the message is you don't need to know what the word exactly means because we all have telephones that are tiny computers that can tell <laughs> us exactly what it yeah. is you know <laughs> yeah, but I know that um you know, I conceded defeat to many of these requests uh, <laughs> reluctantly <laughs> um, because I think that there is a certain level of um, uh, growing up in a part of the world where your culture is not the dominant culture that creates the work that you actually consume. Like, you know, living in Australia, most of the popular culture and media is created in the United Kingdom and the United States. And you just learn to like be like, oh, well, that's the way that's spelt there and that's the way, oh. you know, that's like phrased in that other country. And you just learn to, to, to deal with it and to, you know, figure it out, work out what someone's talking about based on context. And I think that Americans are very rarely forced to encounter that themselves like yeah. they expect that the rest of the the culture will be designed for them in a way god i'm sounding really i don't mean to be rude and belligerent but you know <laughs> i, I yeah. think that's a, a really interesting point it makes me wonder about like having grown grown up in that that sort of circumstance like do you feel a tension where you're like is is the way that i'm creating this because of that cultural imperialism or is it like something how do you like draw the line between or can you draw a line between like the like American and UK influences versus like the Australian and Tasmanian influences? Hmm. I know that I speak differently and create work differently for other Australians. Um, if I'm, if I'm making something that I know is for an Australian audience, I've, I've had comics published in, um, cartoons really published in uh, big broadsheet papers in, in Australia, um, mainstream press. And the jokes wouldn't make any sense in the United States. But there's also a certain amount of tone and humour that is I would I'm consciously creating that for a specific audience. And there are things that I would not – there are phrases I wouldn't use if I was creating something for an American audience because I know that they wouldn't understand what that meant. And, you know, there's – Australian, Australia has a lot of slang, like 
a lot, a lot, a <laughs> lot of slang. And uh, I'm constantly saying things. I have been working for the Nib for four years and Matt Bors and I have spoken almost every day during that time. And I still say things where he is like, what are you, you even talking about? <laughs> and, uh, and we have to go through this rigmarole all the time where I'm like, really, that's not something that Americans say. I should also point out I'm a dual national. I'm an American citizen. My dad is from Seattle. Like, you know, I'm not like, you know, coming at this with absolutely nothing. But apparently, you know, I think that there's things that you just don't think about when you're talking and when you're when you're creating a work. There's like a amount of um, cultural understanding that you kind of I think that you do approach it if you're if you're used to working in more than one culture. Like if you guys were doing something right, you were making a comic or making something for a um, for an audience overseas and thinking, well, no American is going to listen to this. There's a level, there's an amount of explanation that you would probably try and add in if you were going to be specific about something, right? Yeah, yeah. For example, we have an interesting audience in in Romania that we've never heard from, but we uh, consistently get about like maybe thirty percent listens in Romania. And I have no idea if they know what we're talking about <laughs> because we say a lot of weird stuff. So we talk about a lot of weird stuff with a lot of weird people. And so it's like, we don't really think about who's going to be listening and if it translates. Yeah. Yeah. We probably should. We probably should. Yeah, I mean, that's probably <laughs> For a result sure. of us being like, oh, well, we're at the dominant culture. Well, yeah. We can say whatever exactly. we want. <laughs> Which is like, you have to understand that. Terrifying <laughs> to me. <laughs> but yeah. So it's interesting to have to think about that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm going to be thinking about that through like the rest of the <laughs> podcast and what we do, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Do you find that that it slows the writing sometimes because you have to go back through something that you've already written or is already forefront in the consciousness? I think I'm always thinking about it, you know, and I'm often thinking about it because you know, I think partially because my background is in journalism and it's like, you know, you write everything so that someone in, you know, grade four would be able to understand it. That's like the goal. Um, but also I think uh, I've worked a lot in history comics and political comics where you're trying to explain something to people. So, you know, um, I mentioned to you guys as you came in the door that I'm working on a piece to go out this week that's a few points in history of the US and Korea relationship. Um, and I think that I wanted to do that comic because I feel like there's all these there's all this background to the relationship that the United States had with Korea before the Korean War happened, yeah. you know? Um, there was, uh, you know, a hundred years worth of, of stuff that went on there and um, some of it was fine, some of it was not fine, you know? But it's worth taking that to consideration when you're thinking about how Korea was split up and why it was split up and, you know, what the Korean understanding of the US occupation of the South was, you know, there's there's a, a level of nuance, I think, that you can get from looking at points in history. And I think that you do come at that from like a cultural or time frame distance, like someone from someone who was an American reading papers in 1919 when the Treaty of Versailles was, um, was being hatched out at the Paris Peace Accords would have had a different understanding of Korea because Korea had been annexed by Japan and occupied by Japan. So they wouldn't have seen Korea in the same way that we see Korea now as this, you know, two separate countries with different cultural identities, you know. Um, and I, I feel like culture 
is understanding your own culture, you need to kind of understand the past cultures that have um, existed. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, like I don't know very much about Korean history, so I'm very excited for this <laughs> to come out. <laughs> Korean American history. Yeah. That, so. Yeah. I know I know going back to about the that period when Japan occupied Korea, but I don't think I know much about pre Japanese colonization. Hmm. Well, and the the world is a different place now than it was. Like American culture in 2018 is not the same as American culture in in 1918. You know, it's a different. Hundred years makes a huge difference in people's understandings of things. You know, and it wasn't until after that that like American culture became like a dominant culture too. Yeah, like it was a result of Hollywood and all of that blowing up that Mm. that happened. So. One of my best factoids is that the 1924 film The Jazz Singer, which was one of the first talking films, uh, brought the word OK to the rest of the world. No one else in the world said OK because it comes from the OK Corral. Um, in, but um, It was like America's first uh, linguistic transplant via the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, like, looking at literature from that period and, like, before that period, too, and, like, seeing how, like, you know, in the 1800s, we tried so hard to emulate, like, uh, writers from England because it was like, oh, they're so much more cultured over there. We're a bunch of, like, backwards. (laughs) And then, you know, after, like, 1940, it's like, oh, well, we're the best, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird transition to make. Yeah. You know, where you're like, okay, well, now we have to dictate how culture works. Well, it's interesting how, like, American culture, if you're talking about, like, my my area in the world of comics, like, Australia has a really strong history of editorial cartoons, and so does Britain. Um, and But the other types of comics are not perhaps, um, you know, as strong. Like we were talking about mainstream comics before, you know, obviously superhero comics and stuff weren't such a big thing. But a huge part of that is because America is such a large market and can make things more cheaply. So like um, American comic books came to Australia as ballast in ships. Um, It was, you know, trash. It was like pulpy trash in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, And then when the Second World War was on, that didn't come and people started making their own comics there. And there is like a history of Australian comics at that point in time. But then once, you know, you know, trade resumes and comics become much more of a thing in the 50s and 60s, like you see... Australian comics disappearing because there is so much more readily available cheap American material. Right, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting to see comics from different countries. Um, my partner's from France, and the French comics that she grew up on that were not American influenced comics were very fascinating because they're like, first of all, very graphic. <laughs> not just porno, <laughs> not pornographic, but just graphic in general. So yeah. if it was like a kids comic about a vampire lives in a castle, there was a lot of bloody stuff everywhere. And you're like, well, this is for kids? She's like, yeah, I read it when I was like eight. <laughs> and loved it. It was great. You know, it's like these weird things. And you see, like when we were there, we saw a comic book shop that was only Tintin stuff. Like 100% all it was. And I just didn't get much of that. And so it was interesting seeing how big Tintin was in France, first of all. And secondly, the generations of it and being like, oh, this is super racist, <laughs> but also interesting. <laughs> you know, there's the weird development of of comics in different areas. And, and still, I feel that 
not not a lot of American comics make it big in France, like at the gas stations and at the like little bar markets where you can get alcohol, but also a magazine and cigarettes. Uh, there were giant volumes of Batman comics that were just like shitty cheap paper, like newspaper paper. And it's like, what? This is super weird. Because here they're like fancy, glossy, like 100%, $6 paper or whatever. And there it's just like Bible paper. Hmm. It's weird. Interesting. Yeah. So I wonder about like, it makes me wonder about the history of comics in France and how it changed like we were talking about for Australia. Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of the greatest disasters of my lifetime is that I learned Indonesian in primary school and high school and not French because like all Japanese, because I can't read any of these <laughs> like amazing comics producing countries yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. It, it's hard to get someone to translate a comic for you. I've tried. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah, but what does that mean? You know, I can see that by the pictures, something is happening, but the jokes don't make sense and the words don't make sense. And yeah. so, Someone, someone's standing over you going like, okay, he's saying this, and then he's saying that. Okay, they're saying this, and you're like, oh, okay, that's enough. <laughs> We've had enough translation. <laughs> I used to get my friend Juan Fernandez to um, read comics aloud to me when I was at cartoon school because I really wanted to know what some of the <laughs> French comics were. And he's actually he's, – he's, he's, he speaks French and Spanish, and his um, – uh, language skills are pretty great and he, he would just like hold the books open it would be like a child's <laughs> story time and he'd be like so what do you think's going on in this panel and I'd be like they're eating soup <laughs> <laughs> no those are people ah! yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating yeah so what uh what was the moment that you decided to get back into art after being pushing against it for so long I think that I always drew for fun. It was always like a, you know, that was always a relaxing thing to me. And I've gone to life drawing classes for many, many years. Um, but uh, I think for me the big shift was uh, a friend of mine uh, gave me a copy of Joe Sacco's The Fixer mm. um, in 2009, I guess, 2010. And I had never seen comics journalism before. Um, I'd never, it had never occurred to me that um, I loved comics. I read a lot of comics, but I'd never, I didn't know anything about Joe Sacco or that type of work. And it kind of blew my mind, you know, like I still remember like finishing it, you know, like sometimes when you've read something that is just so awesome and you like sit down and you just like look at the cover. And I was like in my living room, and my cat was there and it was <laughs> raining and I was like, oh my God, I should totally do this. Like this would be, this is really great. I really like this idea. And I kind of thought about that for a couple of years. Um, and I w did a lot of drawing in that time. And I was a member in, um, I lived in Canberra for a while, in, which is the capital city in Australia. For those of you who don't know, it's not Sydney. It's not Sydney. It's not Sydney. Um, and uh, I was a member of a comics collective there. Um, we made an, an anthology and, you know, it was really great, really amazing, supportive people. Um, and I think that they kind of really encouraged me to, you know, think more seriously about that. And also um, I used to work at a website called Crikey um, in Australia and I started on the same day that the Crikey cartoonist uh, – called First Dog on the Moon, started. And he now works for The Guardian. But um, he was very <laughs> – we used to joke that I could draw better than him, which is still true to this day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, 
And he was, you know, he was also like really supportive of the idea of me perhaps like taking more of an interest in that area, particularly when I decided to go to grad school to, to do an MFA. Yeah. But when I sat down at the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction uh, to do my first like studio arts class, I had literally had one drawing class, like proper drawing class since I was in grade eight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How did it hit you, the, the drawing class, like once you actually got into it? Oh, I love drawing. I think that I look back on pieces that I created before that moment with absolute horror as (laughs) many of us would do. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, that is so terrible. I can't even believe you thought that was okay. (laughs) Yeah. Am I the only person who's gone back through their blog and, like, purged really embarrassing drawings that they did? (laughs) No. No, Definitely not. We're both musicians. I I go back. I save, like, every project file that I ever create. I do it all electronically. So, like, I'll go back sometimes to, like, 2012 and I'll be like, oh, no. (laughs) This is awful. Nobody should ever hear this. Who did this? Oh, it was me. Darn. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm sure sure every discipline has that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I hope so. I don't want to feel like I'm the only one. Yeah. (laughs) As an editor and someone who accepts submissions for for comics and different things, do you find that you did break that to a lot of people where you're like, oh, thanks, (laughs) but uh, try some other things? Yeah, I mean, I think that what's really hard um, at the nib is that as we've sort of gained popularity and we've gained a lot more submissions, so people often get frustrated with us because we take a long time to get back to everyone, but it's because we actually look at everything, you know, Um, and uh, I try to give feedback when I can to people um, and sometimes it's – it's hard when you can see that someone is just starting out and um, maybe they're not ready to pitch you yet. So you want to be encouraging to be like, you know, take some, you know, more figure drawing classes because that would really help you or something like that. But you don't want to be rude. Um, And I have one of the cultural things that I've struggled with being an Australian working in America is that Americans really need smiley faces a lot more than your average person. Um, (laughs) you have to be a little bit, you can't say, you can't be straight with someone. You can't just be like, look, buddy, you just can't draw and it's never going to happen. Like, you know, like you have to be like, you're, you know, you're getting there, man. And you know, just maybe a little bit more of this and they're the shit sandwich. Yeah. You got to give them a shit sandwich, but you've also, you've also, I think got to, um, uh, think more about them emotionally than I would probably think otherwise, which sounds weird in a job. I'm like, you know, I work yeah. at a media outlet. My job is saying, nope, yes, nope, yes, you know, yeah. or whatever. But um, I do try and give people feedback where I can if it, they're not successful. But we also do take on a lot of people who are on the line and who are maybe a little bit below the line where we're like, this is a really cool idea and we don't know if this person can pull this off because they've actually like – they only demonstrated that they can even do this type of cartoon once ever and it's in their portfolio, but let's give them a shot, you know? And that's the biggest issue we have is that people will be pitching massive ideas. They want to do like a 40 panel comic about something that they've had an idea for, but they have never made a 40 panel comic about anything. And I think that that's something people should be thinking a little bit more about when they're submitting work for, you know, 
I mean, we're going to pay them. It's like a, it's a professional gig, you know, um, and editors need to know that you need to be able to demonstrate that you can do the work. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because it's this weird concept of instant fame and that I find in America a lot, obviously, um, but people don't work the steps for it. So in the same way that if you don't draw yourself a 40-panel comic that you're interested in, how are you going to do it ever? You know, and it's just the same way, like, you, you can't be a film director if you haven't directed any films. Like, you got to try first. You got to go through the steps and put in the efforts, you know, just like as a musician, like you can't play shows if you've never played anything, you yeah. know, <laughs> so I, you wouldn't, to prove I wouldn't it. rock up and be like, Hey man, I've like never played guitar before, except maybe like, I think I can, you know, I can, I think I have an idea of where the fingers go on this. Um, yeah. and will you be, can I be in your band? I don't yeah. know. Well, or like I've played guitar once. Here is the one time that I've played guitar. Well, more, more specific. Please hire me to play guitar professionally. <laughs> more specifically <laughs> in general in music. It's like, Hey, I want to play this show, but I want to go on third. It's like, yeah, have you played a show before? No, it's my first show. Then you go on first. No one's going to be there. Yes, that is right. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I, I want to see you. Yeah. See if you can do it, you know? Yeah. And so it's like you can't expect to headline a show if you've never played a show before. You can't expect right. to get paid to make comics if you've never made comics before. Yeah. I think it's, I think there's, a, I don't know, uh, a level of understanding that needs to come from from people looking at what you're doing as well. Like, I would like people to look at what the nib produces and be like, oh, this work is actually in line with what this idea I have for this work is in line with what this, this these people publish, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. And I've talked to other friends who work in other types of publishing and comics and it's there's a similar story there. It's like you need to know that your work is going to fit and that you can do work that will look like it fits in with, you know, what they're, what they're looking for. So yeah. I'm sure that like, you know, in music there are different types of music and you would, you know, I, I don't – you know, I'm, I may perhaps not want to work in superhero comics, probably because I can't draw that well. Uh, <laughs> but also, like, you know, it's not particularly my interest, you know, and that doesn't mean that I'm disrespecting that particular genre. It just means that, you know, I, I don't expect people to draw in a DC style for a comic on the nib, you know? Right. right. But what if they did, though? Oh, it would be like, that's really lovely. <laughs> I would really hope that it was in theme with um, the piece that they were creating, though, yeah. you know? Like maybe if they were doing a piece about DC Comics. <laughs> yeah, or if they were doing a piece about, we were talking about masculinity earlier. Yeah. Like if there was someone was doing a piece on, you know, uh, representations of masculinity um, in culture or like, I don't know, I, I listened to a really interesting radio story the other day about, um, you know, steroid use. Yeah. That would be perfectly done in, you know, a uh, a more traditional comic style. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like uh, there's the Lara Croft uh, comic. I think Sarah Merck wrote for the nib that was like a more, it felt like more traditionally rendered than a lot of the stuff that is on the nib and like that sort of thing too, where it like totally fits with the the idea of like, you know, the history of that, that game and character. Yeah. So the artist on that piece was Isabella Rotman and she really got into doing research on to not only Tomb Raider, but I think like representations of Tomb Raider over time, particularly in the nineties, which were very in much in that comic book kind of yeah. style. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, that stuff's super fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I need to look closer at things. We were talking yesterday about, what a video game narrator designer is. And that is not a writer, <laughs> you know, and it's just this weird concept that I never thought about before. It's like you play video games, you read comics and you don't think that 
there's so many people involved sometimes. Uh, we were also talking to a previous guest about, um, she was a colorist, about uh, flatters and, and letters and their importance, right? And it's like, oh, of course. Of course it makes sense, you know? Yeah, like thinking about the, the number of, like in tr- traditional comics, the number of steps or people who touch like an individual panel is like mind-boggling to me. <laughs> Yeah, I that is so much work. I can't even, you know, imagine working on a project like that. It would be really intense. But color flatting is really useful if someone can do that for you. Like, you know, it's it's great. It's also a good way to get your start if you're not a you're you're not in quote unquote colorist yet. Yeah. And you want to do work for people. It's a good stepping stone to be like prove that you can do something along the line and build a portfolio on that. Like, oh, I flatted this. Let me show you what else I could do. Yeah. All careers take baby steps, guys. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you you more on this subject. No. Okay, I'm changing subjects. I wanted to talk to you about uh, your 2017 schedule because it looked crazy. My 2017. 2017. I don't even even really know what I did in 2017 anymore. (laughs) It was intense. I moved back to America. I went to a workshop in Indonesia. Yeah. I like made the biggest comic of my entire life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of stuff happened. I got pregnant. I'm having a baby. That Uh, that now that 2017 was the year that, you know, stuff happened for me in a big way. (laughs) Did you feel like it was the right amount of stressful activity or just too much stressful activity? Because it sounded like good stuff was happening but also sounded like a really long time of just like 16 hour days, full on days. Yeah. It was a lot of that. I think a big thing for me was finishing the reported missing comic. Just, I just needed to do it because um, the, one of the main characters, can I talk about this comic a little bit? Yeah, yeah. you can. Wes has finished it. I haven't, but I will, but go ahead. Okay. So the story is a true story. Cause that's, the, that's my genre guys. That's a, um, uh, based on interviews that I did with a girl I went to high school with whose mum was convicted of murdering her stepfather. Um, and I started working on that comic like two years ago and it had a bunch of different forms and iterations before we kind of settled on something. And we settled on it when it was, when it was revealed that uh, this woman was going to get an appeal hearing um, and I needed to finish it before her appeal hearing happened. And that meant a lot of really, really long days because I wanted to put the comic out like while that was going on, partially because, you know, comics take a really long time to make. So I didn't want big stuff to happen um, like before I had a chance to finish this piece. So, yeah, that was that was my goal. But I decided, because I'm a crazy person, that I would lovingly (laughs) watercolor all of these pages and I would do millions of leaves that are really just gorgeous and covered up by speech balloons in almost every panel. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. (laughs) It is a really great looking comic. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Pay it off. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how much time goes into the journalist part and then also the comics part for me. Yeah. Well, reading a 1,000 page transcript for a court report is definitely one way to do some research. (laughs) I work in the legal industry, so I'm familiar with (laughs) (laughs) It's a horrible nightmare. (laughs) I mean, I just finished like a 10 day trial about like monitor stands, patent issues and monitor stands. What? Yeah. There are patent issues in monitor stands. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> Don't you dare infringe upon my copyright to make this the most ergonomic shape and size. Exactly. <laughs> that was exactly it. It was, it was d- having to do with, it was like a two panel monitor stand where the arms like moved in and whether or not the uh, like way you adjusted the monitor was like three dimensional. Yeah. So it was like 10 days about that. <laughs> Hundreds of sheets of paper. Oh, hundreds and thousands. hundreds. Oh. Thousands of pages of binders. Kills me. <laughs> I'm that sure nobody that looked at. Yeah. Nobody fucking used. Because <laughs> we showed everything electronically anyway. Oh, well, that's the big thing, isn't it? In those things is the pieces of paper that you generate. I create an embarrassing amount of paperwork when I'm doing research for something that long because yeah. I need to print things out in order to read a lot of the stuff. Yeah. I did not print out the massive legal report, though. <laughs> I couldn't justify doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> the planet does. <laughs> so journalism's always been something that I've been interested in, but I've never had any like training in it beyond like paralegal training and like research and investigation and stuff. And I'm wondering... Like, how much of a paper record of your investigation do you keep in case of, like, in case somebody, like, comes and says this thing that you wrote about is totally wrong and totally false and that sort of sort of issue? Um, so I keep um, – I'm – a very embarrassingly detailed person. I have like a lot of records for this is from this bit, this is from this bit, this is from this newspaper article. Um, and everything at the nib is legally vetted. Um, we have a team of lawyers who look over stuff um, from our parent company, First Look Media, and uh, everything has to kind of be like clearly stated. And we do fact checking of everyone's pieces before we get to that stage. But often that's the stage where, you know, we'll be asked, well, where did that information came come from? And I'll be like, actually, that's a really good point. I didn't think about where did that come from? Um, and so for my, but for my own work, I have, uh, I just keep a lot of references. I've used EndNote before, which is a program that you can use to kind of like, I, I actually learned how to use it when I was, in college for doing big research papers. Um, and uh, I think that Andy Warner also uses that. He's another nib cartoonist. Um, but yeah, backing up everything is important. Everything you say, every statement you make, unless someone said it, and if someone said it, you need to know where that was from, like which part of an interview did you get that from? So I keep like transcripts and stuff and I reference where that part of the story comes from. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Like I've, I've thought about, we, we've not done any like reporting, reporting for the podcast, but it's something that I always think like there's sometimes like a story will come up that's related to what we're doing and like, we want to look into it, but we're also like, we don't know how to cover ourselves for like doing that sort of like thing or like talking about something really serious that happened in our community there. It's like, we want to talk about it, but we don't, we don't have like the knowledge of how to like cover our asses if we talk about something that happened that's serious so that's really interesting to hear like about the detailed detailed record keeping that you keep for that sort of stuff well i think it's really usually pretty obvious when you're slandering someone um Mm -hmm. and uh i say this as someone who's nearly been sued twice um i think you're I think you just need to think about like, is this, can this be verified by a secondary source or, or, you know, a third source is great, you know, um, for pieces of information. But I think you're allowed to sometimes, you're allowed to say, 
well, I don't think this is good for this city, you know, because people are allowed to have opinions on stuff, you know. Um, And certainly I think that for me when I was making Reported Missing, like it was a really weird comic to make because it's kind of journalism, but it's also me sitting down and interviewing someone who is deeply affected by a particular event um, and is not going to be giving me like the most, you know, uh, well, from their perspective, it's the most honest answer. But from perhaps someone else's perspective, that is not really what they think has happened and it's being skewed in every way because everything that we say or do is is reframed through our own understanding of the world and the understanding that other people have when we're, when they're, you know, consuming what you've, we've created or said. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was reading that piece, like um, about the, the per- particular perspective that that piece presents primarily and then thinking about like the the um kids of the the guy who disappeared and like what their perspective was and how because of the way the comics presented it presents um the person you knew is like very sympathetic and you really want to like go along with what they're saying and it makes the other people seem unsympathetic but then like, wait, is that just because of the framing and who you're talking to specifically? And yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how, how that works. I think that what's really hard with comics is that you're re, especially with a piece like the reported missing comic, which was me recreating a bunch of stuff that I didn't see, you know, I don't know how it really looked or what really happened. Um, So I don't think of it as being a journalism comic in the traditional sense, which would be, you know, actually taking reference photos when you're in a physical space and only reporting on stuff that you can actually see. Um, But I did reach out to the children and try and get some kind of comment from them and I wasn't successful. Um, and sometimes, you know, you've got to respect that, obviously. That's, you know, how it works. Um, and that's the way that media generally works, you know. If people are quiet, you put in a statement saying the person, this person failed to respond. You hear it in NPR reports every single day. We asked the president for a comment and we, weren't, we did not get a response, you know, yeah. like that kind of thing. There's a really fascinating thing happening right now with- journalism so i was not a political person until like a year and a half ago (laughs) two years ago maybe and um and it's really interesting to hear that like before there was a standard of course to have many references but there were never this many like sources on things especially politically where you're like oh they have 16 sources that's a lot of fucking sources (laughs) where you usually have like two or three and some maybe not reliable but here it's like oh we have a lot of people Mm. who can verify this one thing happened what Mm. do they call that muscle sourcing i I can't remember somebody or like muscle paragraph or something where like like wapo was having like we talked to 36 people at the white house and they all said yeah (laughs) (laughs) we can all verify this is true it is not fake news yeah right (laughs) scary yeah. You had a lot of pushback from political comics, like in general, with with the kind of stuff that you guys present on the Nib? I mean, I think that the Nib is fairly openly like a pre- progressive comic website. You know, we've had artists who've done work for us in the past say they don't want to do work for us anymore because they don't feel it represents their type of work. And that's fine. Okay. You know, um, I don't think that 
Uh, I think media outlets spend a lot of time trying to be like, we're totally not biased and we like everything we present is exactly how it happened when we all know that everything has gone through these filters um, and is being, you know, when you do present a story, you're always leaving something out and you're always, you know, focusing on one particular aspect of it. And I think the same can be said for political cartoons. Like I quite frankly would like to see fewer cartoons that have Mr. Trump in them in on our website. Um, but that's probably because I've been, you know, I've been editing comics on Donald Trump for a very long time now. And you reach a point where you just, want to bash your head in rather than (laughs) like like you know say to somebody yet again like no his hair looks weirder than that make sure he's the right color of orange oh man (laughs) there are a couple nib comics where i just i i won't read them anymore because the representation of him is just like i'm like oh my god again It's just a bit grotesque or yeah one one is a bit grotesque and the other one is like it's just I'm, I'm also tired of seeing yeah. comics about Donald Trump. It's very sad. It's actually interesting because, you know, when Obama was president, we didn't do as many comics with Obama in them. Like he wasn't as central. You know, there were still comics that were about the they were all political, yeah. but they were they were focused on other aspects of, um, you know, bureaucracy and legislation and things that were going on in the courts, you know. And that's the really big difference right now is that so much of the news cycle – and it's because we're reflecting the news cycle. Right. You know, so much of the news cycle is centered around the cult of personality regarding Trump. Yeah. Yeah. He's much more – there's a lot more to parody in Trump, I think, than there was in Obama. I mean, yeah, but sometimes there's a point where you're like, this isn't actually a joke anymore. This is like really happening. Like yeah. I don't begrudge Stormy Daniels anything. Like I really love her Twitter feed. It's one of my favorite things in this world right now. <laughs> but at the same time, like that would have undone any other presidency. Yeah. Right. You know, that's kind of a scandal. And it's hard sometimes thinking about the amount of parody the the room for parody like at what point do you just stop and say actually this is so messed up you yeah. know this is not cool at all I'm really not down with it you know yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. is it was it puzzle law where like you can't tell between satire and reality anymore because they're just too close to each other like the uh the idea you can't parody extremism because it's already so ridiculous yeah yeah i mean like uh, that it's it's so hard to like read anything quote unquote funny about what's happening because like it's just too much i think that we'll be able to laugh a lot more in the future um and my job mostly at the nib is editing the longer form pieces which are actually extremely serious some of them yeah. not all of them but some of them are and you know i i think it's important for us to try and present information that people might not have heard about in a way that's accessible so um, one of the pieces we did recently that didn't get as much love as I think it should have was a piece on the Bayou um, pipeline through Louisiana, um, which is, you know, part of the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, that whole that whole set. And there's a lot of really messed up environmental stuff going on right now. And we're not talking about it because we're too busy talking about all these other things. Yeah. And I think that's of concern because, you know, <sighs> Like Louisiana is going underwater um, and, you know, there's so much in environmental damage that's happening because of the oil industry. And I think it's, it's like, uh, how do I put this? 
I don't want a parody about Donald Trump to be taking up space that should be devoted to that. There is space for that type of for, for parody and things like that. But I think one thing that the nib does well is a good mix of like serious and, you know, funny kinds of comics. Right. Um, or at least I hope that's what we do. Um, and part of our goal is to kind of give voice to issues that maybe the mainstream media aren't going to be able to go into. And yeah. that, I think that's why there's so much more personal stuff there too. Yeah. My impression of the nib is that it succeeds at that. Definitely. Oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go to it if it was all Donald Trump parody. I would oh, just like, yeah. I'd be no like way. fuck this site. Yeah. <laughs> Man, <that> sounds tiring. <laughs> yeah, I just, whenever like I see something that's like Donald Trump parody on SNL or like anything, I just can't handle Donald Trump parody anymore. It's just too much for me now. It's just, it's all too much. Yeah, the well, headline for 2018. I'm, <laughs> I'm really sorry. It's going to be the headline for 2019 as well. Yeah, 2020 is the year of possibility, folks. It's, but I think he's probably going to get reelected. It seems so far oh. away. <laughs> I can't think about that right now. <laughs> That's two years in the future. I'll think about it then. <laughs> I mean, it's just concerning that so many little things are slipping through um, without attention. With, with attention. That would be normally giant attention, yeah. but it's being still overshadowed. It's just like a wildfire where all the like oxygen from the surrounding area is getting sucked into this, like just this blaze of yeah. awfulness. <laughs> well, there's, there's the new issues, of course, like Puerto Rico and stuff like that. But there's also the old issues that weren't resolved before the presidency that have also gone under like Flint, for example. Yeah. And some like other things. <laughs> drone strikes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's, I mean, you could say that Puerto Rico is an example of something that is like a really long historic issue for the United States. Yeah. And, to, well, for Puerto Ricans, really. Right. Like, yeah. You know, um, the issues that Puerto Rico's faced in the, after Hurricane Maria, like so much of that is due to like crappy infrastructure. Yeah. And you know what? If that many Americans were affected by a lack of electricity or water, when I say Americans, I mean Americans like the Puerto Ricans who have U.S. passports yeah. uh, but were on, you know, in one of the 50 states rather than being in, you know, another colonial territory, um, it would be seen very differently. You know, the media coverage would not be what it is. Yeah, definitely. Well, an interesting example of that right now is the lava flowing in Hawaii is much more taken care of than because it's a tourist destination and because there's a lot of continental people that go there and live there too and a lot of um i'm from hawaii so there's a lot of different like culture that is similar to ours and then it's like okay well puerto rico is much closer and much worse off that also needs people to be evacuated still and like also needs infrastructure help and so it's very troubling <laughs> yeah in general and then you have like the the constitutional issues of puerto rico that like make the whole problem worse like around how they have to pay debts in a particular order because of how their constitution structured that makes it so that they can't reinvest in infrastructure because they're like required to pay certain debts to the united states that our legislature has control over and that are not giving them relief on and america the land of opportunity <laughs> depending on which part of the land you live in and what you look like yeah <laughs> Yep. 
Okay. Sorry, um, this is a really bleak conversation. I didn't mean to steer you guys down uh, this path. Great. We've been going down this path a yeah, lot it's, lately. It's, <laughs> it's a trend that is not, it's not something that we've been trying to do, but it's something that is obviously affecting a lot of us. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. We, we do... Uh, the, the way the podcast is structured is we like do a little intro and we have the interview and then we record an outro that's just us talking. And I can't remember <laughs> what the context was, but like we I, ended up I do up. remember it's before you get there. So we were talking about knowing your local history. So we're talking to a person named Thor Harris who lives in Texas and Austin. He was giving us a lot of history about the segregation of people in Austin and how black people are pushed out and artists are pushed out to these really shitty parts of the city and so we're talking about how important it is to know your local history and how i do not know oregon's local history very well and then we're talking about that went on to native americans in oregon and then it went on to yeah like just like the cultural trauma that the u.s has imposed on the people who were here first right yeah yeah so it's been a little bleak lately i guess (laughs) (laughs) oops Mm, one of the really speaking of that kind of thing one of the interesting things that has happened um in the world of comics in terms of uh comic shows and stuff was going to toronto um and i guess it's canadians as well but like in australia whenever you do a public event you do a welcome to country so you say i would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we meet on in canberra that's the Ngunnawal people so you would say the Ngunnawal people and acknowledge their elders past and present and is you know you can add more to that that sort of thing but that's a really standard thing to say at the start of any event like if you went to like yeah like any kind of big event that would be said and in in the comic show that i went to recently in toronto tcaf um that was the their version of that which is um obviously um worded differently because they're canadians and despite being part of the commonwealth canada and australia are very different places (laughs) they have different indigenous (laughs) groups who are oppressed by white people so um there's a um you know they have their own thing in there and i just it's something that i feel like the u.s needs to get into like i'm we have a poster up on the wall in this co-working space that i'm in the enthusiasm collective which has um the list of the tribes that from that live in port that lived in portland or live in portland um and I think that's really awesome, you know, and I think that should be reflected more in public stuff that I see. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Portland, apparently per capita, Portland has like the highest population of Native Americans out of any major city in the country. But like even here, like I feel I, I moved here from southern Utah and in southern Utah, I felt like it was way more uh, the like the Paiute culture was way more present and visible than like the Native American culture is in Portland, the place where there's supposedly like this huge Mm. population of native American people that like, I feel like I just don't even see reflected in the culture of the city in any way. That's really sad. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that in the Pacific Northwest region before, um, before the expansion, uh, was there were like a million, um, people living here from different groups and that's like that's kind of a lot of people, you know, like especially it, for that period. Yeah, it like makes you think a lot about how um, I don't know how all that stuff unfolded. Have you guys been up to um, Cape Disappointment in Washington State? I've not. It's um, it's just over the border, and it's where Lewis and Clark like came out into the met the Pacific Ocean. You Perhaps know, Perhaps I have, but as a child yeah. <laughs> on a trip and a field trip. <laughs> And they have, it's really interesting because they have like a whole little, you know, cultural information center there that's all dedicated to Lewis and Clark. Um, And it's sort of interesting because it doesn't really talk that as much 
about, um, you know, the native groups in the area, but it's made very obvious through the whole telling of this story, how constant their encounters that the expedition were having with indigenous groups. It was, it's like amazing. It's like every couple of days they're like, Oh yeah. And then we met this group and then, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating. I don't know my history well enough, but it seems like very prevalent. And there were lots of, there was lots of discussion there about, you know, what existed beforehand and then there's all the environmental stuff about like what's happened to that area since they started put, building bridges and big spits and things like yeah. that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm always interested in that that kind of like pre like pre white history. You know, like what do we know about this place and who yeah. was here and what they did. There's a book that I've been meaning to read. I think it's called like 1491 or something. That's all about the history of the United States pre Columbus and like um, yeah growing up here like you hear about it you get taught like a little bit about it usually in like state history class or like you get taught about like the trail of tears but that's almost it you hear like the people who helped white people a little bit like Sacagawea or um uh now I'm forgetting the name of the there's you like hear very specific names that are either people who really aggressively fought white people or helped white people and you don't hear about anything else yeah, yeah. I mean, Australia has a very uncomfortable relationship with its indigenous past. Yeah. I, in Tasmania, where I grew up, um, there was this thing called the Black Line, which was a, um, like basically a bunch of white people walking in a line from the, the north to the south of the state and um, killing or imprisoning any indigenous people they came across, which did a very good job at wiping the population out. Um, and I remember when I was in high school, we did like a, um, a sort of interactive under learning thing on that where, um, the teacher rolled out like a map of the state and then she put all these little gum nuts on there. Um, gum nuts in Australia are like, you know, the nuts that come on trees. Um, they're, they're quite, they're kind of, I don't know how, they're probably about an inch, inch wide. Um, and she would pop them all over the map. And then she got some buttons that represented the white people arriving. And she went year by year moving the people in and then moving people out and sort of showing like the, the movement of, of, um, uh, of the populations and the decimation of the indigenous population. And she was crying and like half my class were crying <laughs> by the end of it. And it was really full on, but it was a really good like exercise for like understanding displacement um, and uh, and like the type, uh, sort of for, the force, the force of assimilation. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely don't get taught that yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, we like need more stuff like that. Yeah, here because we don't get anything like that. It was like, interesting. Even the Trail of Tears is like also this happened, but also like let's not talk about it too much. Yeah. It's interesting uh, going to school in Oregon and then going to school in Hawaii because Hawaii had a more recent colonization than most of continental u.s right and so it's still very much in the mindset that like uh this happened not that long ago like maybe 40 years ago yeah. and it's like, we had kings until that point you know and so you talk about it a lot in a lot of classes and then hearing about like the different steps of like oh we're gonna come and just let you have your king but we're gonna take over these buildings and these buildings and these buildings and you can have your king no worries and then like, oh, by the way, that person has less power now. Oh, by the way, that person, we killed them. Don't worry about it. It's like, what? wait, what? You know, as a kid. But and then you come back or I came back to Oregon. And I was like fascinated um, because you just don't hear it 
and then you take a like a world history class in high school and it's like okay well how are they going to cover this it's like well from the american perspective yeah and so it's like oh i don't know anything about world history (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think that stuff is really difficult because like most countries have their own when it's like we're talking it's the same with media it's like you put your own cultural slant on things um like how does this uh impact us and like putting yourself at the central center of things but I don't know. I mean, the U.S. has been a big part of a lot of massive changes in world history, in the, especially in the 20th century and 21st century. Like, it would be difficult to explain a lot of the major events that have happened without talking about U.S. history. But maybe it needs to be in the context of how it's all working for other countries as well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of problems that need solving in education. Oh, there's a lot of problems that need solving everywhere. Yeah. 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 So that was one of the interesting things in that interview too. Um, you're talking about the nib and how you're focusing more at the time on uh, teaching examples of things that are happening because it, comics take a while to produce. And so you don't just focus on headline stories because by the time you get to it, it will be too long as opposed to things like voter fraud or voter ID theft or whatever it was. And it's like, that's far more important to understand in the long term than this person did a bad thing once, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, it's interesting focusing on the, the things that have long-term impact versus the things that have short-term impact. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that the, um, we're more issue focused in some ways for our longer pieces, at least than we are with, um, then like, uh, news focus like we definitely produce like short reactionary pieces but we produce a lot of work that is like more considered and talking about something that's going to be an issue for a really long time and where there's not perhaps as much movement but that doesn't take away from the importance of it i think it's an important step to the teaching of people <laughs> you know because <'cause laughs> like like we're talking about high school and stuff like that like how how could you cover so much in high school with with high schoolers and then later in life if you're not driven to nonfiction. Or history at all like how are you going to learn without some media outlets that you're all already attracted to telling you like if you just don't seek it out then you won't know and that's scary but it's a problem that i have like i didn't start paying attention until very recently <laughs> and <laughs> catching up on things it's like, oh. well i think in the past people had much fewer sources of information and so more people were perhaps reading the same things or watching the same things you know like when I grew up, I'm not that old, really. In the I'm not really that old. But like, there's a. You know, I remember that there were four television stations in Tasmania when I was growing up. We don't have cable, and um, there was like one local newspaper, the Mercury, which still exists, although not in its original premises, which is really sad because it was in. It was the, Australia's oldest. Uh, not Australia's oldest newspaper, but the, the newspaper that had been in its, you know, publishing from the same building for the longest period of time. Ah, they stopped doing that. It's really sad. But, you know, uh, that's that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But, like, there was definitely, like, a limited source of information about local events and news and people would read – everyone would read those and so you would have conversations based on the same information. Whereas I think now, like, with the internet – and social media, there are like so many different view- perspectives and viewpoints that people can get, and not all of them perhaps go through a, a level of rigor. I want to say a level <laughs> of rigor. I mean, I'll never forget when war in Iraq broke out and broke out. It like it broke out. It just happened, you know. It didn't just happen. Um, and the front page of the Hobart Mercury was "Fluffy Dog Wins Dog Show," and then below the fold was the news of the war in Iraq breaking out. <laughs> 
And I just remember being like, this is what's important on this island, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. man. That's really interesting. I I remember I was uh, in high school when the war in Iraq started. And I remember, like, just sitting and watching, like, CNN do their, like, 24 hours, like, embedded, like, not at the front lines, but, like, just behind the front lines and being like, oh, my God, this is really important. (laughs) I didn't know it happened. Until like uh, until there were protests about it, that's when I found out it happened. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I just didn't have any perspective, and none of my yeah. friends gave any shits about that kind of stuff. My parents don't watch the news, or I mean, my dad reads the paper but doesn't share with me about it, you know. Huh. And so I was like, "Why are these people so mad about? Oh, that's bad." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a level of performing one like civic duty i think that probably comes along with like trying to be more informed which i think is something that's really starting to happen since trump was elected president i think there's like a lot more people being like we need to know about this stuff because you know things happen and i'm you know i majored in political science at university i like love the media like i'm the wrong person to talk to about that sort of you know (laughs) that sort of stuff but like i'm always like you know of course this is important because so much depends on it votes are actually significant i mean i think the system is flawed but this is the system that exists i don't think you should always work within the system necessarily but like i think that you know if you're trying to make some kind of uh change to think more about what you're doing like in australia um voting is compulsory like everyone has to vote you get fined if you don't vote um and that i think that creates kind of a different perspective to some people like heaps of americans are like well how is it even a democracy if you can't even choose whether you're going to vote or not sure um which has you know that's relevant yeah definitely but i think that if you know that you have to cast a vote it kind of makes you think a little bit more differently about you know what you're consuming and what the issues are yeah definitely in france there's a day and everybody that you can't be you can't go to work that day you have to go vote at a certain period and then same thing you don't get fined i don't think but they definitely send you a letter and be like what do you do <laughs> so you have, to have this weird exception if you have to work for like hospitals or something like that and then you usually they don't do it but you can like mail in a ballot um but yeah it's one day and people would never think of working that day you have to today's the day i vote you gotta go you know yeah everybody prepares for it i think it's one of the greatest travesties travesties in the united states is that elections happen on weekdays i think yeah. that's insane yeah. and actually like horribly discriminatory <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well yeah it's <laughs> it was purposeful <laughs> it's an intentional yeah. system i also forget easily that that other people don't have mail-in ballots oh, yeah because here it's so easy and it's like oh most places you, don't you have to go them. somewhere and talk to somebody else oh shit yeah terrible this generation what's with everyone not wanting to talk to people <laughs> <laughs> we hate it yeah <laughs> it's been one of the best parts of this podcast actually has been talking to a lot of different people in different fields and uh, people we admire and people that we didn't know about before, you know, the interview and then um, getting so much weird information from people and perspectives. It's been really fun. What's yeah. the weirdest thing anyone oh, has ever said to you guys? That's some really weird shit. There was, there was a thing uh, in a, the one episode that we didn't release that was pretty weird, but I don't want to talk about it on the episode since we didn't release the episode that it was talked it's about. The o- <laughs> it's the only episode that we trashed immediately. That, like, oh, wow. We left the interview and we were like, we're not going to put that one out. Yeah. We put out almost every episode since, I mean, ever. Every episode except for that one. Yeah. yeah. Even that the ones that have like audio issues, we've worked around and put out. 
but that one we, we had no audio issues and <laughs> and decided to trash for personal reasons yeah uh moral reasons <laughs> but in terms of the ones that we've actually released i don't know man we were, we were just surprised in the episode that came out uh oh, yeah. monday um we interviewed somebody from um band called front 242 uh one of the people be one of the founding members of that band so he's got to be like in his 60s 50s or 60s and the thing that came up was like racing car games and in like, playstation like it was the best yeah. we're like what what <laughs> why are we talking about this the whole time yeah we're like hold on <laughs> just like this legacy band that had a big from from belgium that had a big american following that got signed to a big american big, label like international following yeah right? and played yeah. Lollapalooza and like all this stuff and then so we talked about that but like towards the end we're like well what else do you like to do you know what kind of books you're reading it's like you're reading? i like fast cars and i like playing games that i can pl- drive fast cars in on playstation <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> awesome yeah Aww. so that was pretty that was like surprising it wasn't so much weird as it was like wait what <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, we talked to a band about playing the what was it, the national geographic or discovery channel oh Just, yeah, yeah. yeah they Talk- played at the like a corporate event for the discovery channel which is like they're not very big, but they're really nice people, and they like uh, knew somebody. Yeah, and it's like somebody worked there, and they're like, "We played in the parking lot for Discovery Channel in front of like the sign," and like that was super weird. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's all the good stuff. Heather, we've heard some weird stuff over the time. I'm, sure, I just can't think of any of it right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's – I think it's really interesting that um, when you sit down and interview people for a long time, it's often the weirdest stuff that comes out at the end. Oh, like yeah. It's like when you've you've gotten through uh, – what I was doing, I did oral history at university, um, which was like, you know, how to record interviews, how to like talk to people about their own personal stories. And the best advice I got from the lecturer in that class was that most people have – their narrative their, the narrative of their life down like they know how it works they know how to tell you how it works and if you ask them questions while they're telling you the narrative they'll almost always direct it back to the narrative of their story right yeah. so this is how this fits in with this part of my life and then so you have to let them finish their narrative of their life and then once they've done with that then you can start asking them questions because that that will give you fresh more fresh responses to it that's interesting yeah it's really interesting one of the things that we set out talking to bands at first and then expanding to other artists that we liked um, was to create interviews that were not the typical questions. Like, for example, we both really enjoyed Report Missing, but I didn't want to talk about it the whole time because I feel like you get interviewed about that a lot, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> which is good, but I would like to hear about the weird stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, a, a problem in band interviews, and I'm sure this happens for everybody, is, like, we would get like these form interviews where it was like clearly something where it's like insert band name here. Yeah. Sometimes still has band names in the brackets <laughs> because they forgot to take it out. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's yeah. bad. Yeah. So setting out, we decided to make a really long form interview on purpose. Yeah. And I mean, all those interviews were all the same questions. Like what's your band name mean? Like what are your influences? If you could play with anybody dead or alive, who would you play with? like okay <laughs> i want to know what book you're reading and why <laughs> i want to know how you got to read that book you know weird stuff yeah and so that's been fun yeah 
And you interview someone like Sarah Merker interviews you back. Oh yeah, she. You, I was. You, you was, can't yeah. even have a conversation with her without her interviewing you. Yeah. It was. It was pretty. <laughs> it, it was, was pretty was interesting to be on the other side. Total turnabout. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're like. Uh. I, I think we spent at least like three quarters of that interview being interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> I have to admit, I do struggle with not interviewing people when I'm in a room with them. Like, I really wanted to sit down and ask you guys questions about what you do and like yeah. what you like and how long have you lived in Portland for and like telling <laughs> you about that. Um, yeah. I feel like I, you know, as someone who has done that for a job, this is like, I have yeah. to put it in my brain and be yeah. like, no, 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 they're going to ask you questions and you have to be funny in response. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the maximum fun guy? Jesse Thorne. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Jesse Thorne did a podcast series where he was interviewing interviewers and it was fascinating because it's like, what kind of questions do you ask people who ask questions all day? And it's like, well, mostly method questions. People want to tell their life story. Like you said, but then you ask, you get off of that topic and start getting into weirder territories and it's really interesting yeah i have to say that i've definitely structured interviews with people where i've been talking to them about their lives um and then ask them questions i've just like i know that that's what they're going to do so i'll just wait until the end to ask proper questions but i did a comic years ago now in vermont um on the alchemist brewing company which produces a beer called heady topper which at the time was the considered the best beer in the world um, and it's produced in really small batches. Um, so it, it was interesting to like talk to them about what they were doing. They had no intention of expanding. They did not want to be the Lagunitas Brewing Company or anything. Like they had, they just wanted to keep doing what they were doing. And I went in and did the interview, and um, the uh, one of the owners she gave me like their whole story about how they started the brewery and where it came from. And at the end, I started asking her questions about this like fancy beer that's like the best beer in the world. And I realized that actually her personal narrative was the most compelling part about the story. And so the comic I did actually ended up being more about her and her husband and their relationship and how they got to where they were than actually about the beer. Yeah. Which to me is more fun to read. Yeah. I, I'm way more curious about that stuff. You know? <laughs> it's like, okay, this, this company's on their website. I know that part, but like, tell me about why, how you got here. Yeah. So, that's really fun. Yeah. I think we are uh, over the time. Yeah. So we want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and talk about <laughs> comics and journalism and, yeah. and the right. bleakness of the modern era. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really sorry about making you depressed. <laughs> uh, do you have any cultural recommendations, TV shows that you're loving, books that you're reading that you love, comics we should check out? Oh, God, that's really hard. I should have said this in advance, but I didn't. Um, so it's Pride Month right now, and the um, the Nib put out a comic on uh, Baron von Steuben, who was a uh, general in the Revolutionary War um, and a, a total queer, and it's a really great comic that we've done that people should definitely read. Um, and uh, I don't know what else I could suggest in terms of like – I mean, like that's what I – Comics for me, I read a lot of comics, um, and so it's kind of like hard for me to like remember what I'm reading and what I'm not reading. Yeah, right. You know, um, oh, how about a co- any comic that you've read that you think not enough people have checked out? Um, there are too many for me to respond to that. <laughs> um, I think so. Uh, this is a this is me being like do, being a friend, but my my friend of mine, Luke Healy, who's Irish, put out a book a couple of years ago called um, "How to Survive in the North," which is about it's sort of like a fictionalized history um, about uh, 
Arctic explorers and it was a no-brow book and it's I think it's really good and I don't think that I think that more people should have read that book that right. is something that I think is really excellent but I love history and I also may have gotten thanked in that book so I probably <laughs> shouldn't be recommending it <laughs> I, I think it's fair game <laughs> yeah I haven't heard of it so I'm stoked yeah great well thank you so much yeah thanks no Harris. That's right. Of the nib. That's right. Deputy editor. Yeah. Of the nib. That's right. A website. Is it the nib.com or the nib.org? I believe it's .com. Um, but yeah, you should definitely check it out. There's some interesting stuff. There's also obviously a lot of um, like current events type stuff too, if you're interested in that. But yeah, I'm not. So there's some good stuff for me too. Um, it is the nib.com. The nib.com. Michael, I'm fucking tired. I know. We both we both literally just got home from work. And by home I mean Wes's house. And so Yeah. Walked up the straight walked up the street together and now we're here. Yep. Had to be out of the sun. Yep. Yep. Hard agree on all of that. Yep. Uh we went to a show. We went to a show. Sunday. It was it was fantastic. That's right. Amon Ra. Yep. Converge. Yep. Neurosis. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was really good. Amon Ra was fucking killer. Yeah, really, really good. Converge was a lot of fun. <laughs> Neurosis was really good. We only stayed for, like, what, one and a half songs? Yeah, one and a half or two, or maybe it was all just one long song. But, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, one, one and a half to two Neurosis songs is, like, that's a good amount of time. Yeah. And we were sleepy. Yeah. And we got into the venue at like 4 p.m. Yeah. A short break in between, but... Yeah. Uh, what was your favorite part of Converge's set? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, the bassist had a fucking killer scream. <laughs> it was really good. It was like, well, like so I, good. I kind of would have preferred if it was that way the whole time. Yeah, and you know, I couldn't tell if the lead singer's scream was like a little off or... Conversely, if there was something going on with the mic that was making it come across as really muddy, yeah, because when he talked, it sounded really muddy too. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of like hard compression because when he was away from the mic, it didn't you couldn't pick him up. Yeah, and then uh, and limiting, and then also just a muddy EQ. Yeah, because he had a pretty growly, deep, quick voice. I I had forgotten or didn't know that the converge was so math rock. Oh man, and it was so that fun to fucking watch. Guitarist was <laughs> sick. Yeah, it was really really fun to watch because you're just like totally what? a dad. Yeah, which was even better because <laughs> he knows what he is, <laughs> and it was just great. Yeah, just great. Just like t-shirt and blue jeans and a big old mustache. Yeah, but like a dad mustache. Yeah, didn't give a shit. Didn't give a shit. Fucking played some riffs. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty fast Going, and crazy. Like, wild on those riffs. Yeah. It was fun. I enjoyed it. We interviewed a band there. I'm not telling you which one. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta you wait. You can find out in a few weeks. <laughs> it's the next episode, I think. Is it? Yeah. I thought we interviewed some. Oh. No, no. No, I yet. gotta talk to you about something. Okay. Off the air. Yeah. <laughs> Secret. Uh, um, yeah. That was cool. Yeah. 
I think that's all that's going on. Oh, August 2nd, which I don't know if there's an episode between this one and that one. Probably not. Uh, August 2nd, there is a show that we're playing. Oh, yeah. At the Lovecraft. At the Lovecraft. We're opening it? Yeah. Playing with Sibling, which starts with X, and uh, Night Nails, which is like a industrial goth band-ish, electronic goth band from L.A. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. And that's it. It's been a while since we played a local show. Yeah, pretty excited about it. Oh, there's a updated version of my latest jam game online now. Oh, nice. Langanga. Uh, if you go to westdoes.com slash games, it's at the top of the thing. The uh, ending is now in the game. Oh. So, like, you can actually see sort of the intent of the story a little better. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. I'll play it now. I, I've been choosing to wait till the ending. Cool. It was in there. I'll let you. I'll let you try it out. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. Um, looks beautiful. Here, it's great. People on Twitter like it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Too sweaty and tired. Fuck, man, I got nothing. Too sweaty. The and movie tired. Mother is good, and if you don't oh, yeah. agree, I can understand why. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I really liked it. Yeah, it was good. Um, still good the second time. Yeah. Because the second time you knew stuff was coming and was still tense. Yeah. Yeah. It was I crazy. could see that. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I understand for sure why people don't like it. There's <laughs> a lot of stuff yeah. not to like there. That movie takes a turn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but great. Um, our buddies Lee have a new album that's pretty dope. Oh, yeah, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet because of trial. It's pretty good. I like it. I want to I wanna listen. I want to give it a good listen. Yeah, as they say. Good listen. Oh, wait, I have listened to it in its entirety, and it's fucking great. Yeah. I, yeah. Haven't, I haven't checked it out yet, but I hear, I heard the sample track when that got premiered like last week. And yeah. I flagged it to listen this weekend. Yeah, I listened to that. It's really good. Yeah. No yeah. surprise. What am I talking about? Uh, our buddy Jason Walton. Jason. Jason, there's another name in there. Jason W. Walton. Jason W. Walton has his new Karata album out. Yep. I don't know if it's out yet, but it's streaming fully. Yeah. Now. Check that out. Also, I think he has a show coming up as JWW, which is like Mm -hmm. his noise project. Yeah. Um, I'll have to look at the details for that, but I think he's got something for that coming up. And that'd be really good. Yeah. I want to check that out. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. A lot of stuff coming up. Yep. Uh, check it out. Yeah, let's end this. That's right. Talking to ghost.com. It's the only place you can find us. Uh, we're on the other stuff, but don't bother. Yeah, the other stuff's made of garbage. That's right. Talking to ghost.com is your best place. You can either play the episode there or download it if you want, or you can get it anywhere. You can get podcasts. Obviously, you got this one somehow. So, yeah. Who knows? Maybe someone mailed it to you. That'd be fun. Wow, that'd be rad. Yeah. I really like the idea of somebody mailing somebody our podcast <laughs> on a cassette. <laughs> like, a cassette. Tape. Yeah, like a floppy disk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'd fit on a floppy. I, don't know I think if we our would. I think our audio files are a little too big for a floppy disk. Yeah. Um I don't know. Maybe if they did like ninety two kilobit per second compression on an MP three. I think we should leave the WAV file and send like ten floppies in a nice box. Mm. Yeah, just cut into segments. <laughs> like ten ten minute segments. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's it. Talking to ghost dot com. You can find us. We got more episodes coming up. Please um, turn to floppy number two. <laughs> <laughs> that would be miserable. <laughs> uh, yeah, great, thanks. Yeah, and remember, 
We're all just ghosts waiting to die. <laughs> <laughs>